Thank you, Nate. I appreciate that if you guys want to have a seat. Um, I believe there is. So we do have nursery workers today. Do we have nursery? Yes. All righty then. So we want to uh, remind you guys as you're heading out. Uh, today is, um, as you can see, Lord's Supper Day. And uh, we're going to be getting into that shortly. But um, I wanted to just bring a brief message um, about this and uh, sort of focus on what, um, what God had laid in my heart this week about this very topic. Um, we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. So if you're turning there, while you're turning there, I want to encourage you just to be thinking about this. A lot of people don't realize this, but when Jesus came and he spoke and he gave his, uh, his teachings, he didn't give a tremendous amount of new revelation to us. Um, he didn't give us a whole bunch of things where he said, this is all brand new. You've never learned this before. Most, in fact, I want to say all. Now, there might be one thing or two, but I have yet to find it, um, where Jesus gave us things that were completely 100% new. Almost everything that he gave us was expanded instructions on what God had already laid out from Genesis all the way through. And by laying these things out, he gave clearer understanding so that we would have a better way of knowing it. Because one of the promises that God gave us is that he never changes, that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And Jesus didn't come to give us anything beyond that. He wanted us to know that everything that God had laid out was coming to fruition and through, through himself as he was beginning to make all of these prophecies that had been laid out from the, end of, from the beginning of, of, of the nation of Israel all the way through to the moment he arrived. And so um, when he came to that final supper uh, with the disciples and he was ready to lift up um, uh, the cup and the bread, he didn't choose to use a completely new motif. He didn't try to bring in something that was so radically different and outside the realm of what the apostles would have understood. He used the imagery that they already understood. He used the, sim the symbolism that was already part of their Passover feast to be able to bring forth that final prophecy that was laid out by Jeremiah in chapter 31 of his book. And oftentimes when we do have our moments of the Lord's Supper time, I mention Jeremiah 31, 31, and I don't remember actually ever preaching this through. Maybe I have, but in the last couple of years, I can't find it in my notes that I did. So I thought this would be an opportunity this morning to be able to have a little expanded discussion um, of where this covenant model comes from that Jesus is laying out. When he held up the cup and said, this is... This blood, this represents the covenant that will be ratified by my blood in really a few short hours. And when you drink of this cup, you need to do this in remembrance of me. When he made that statement, he was bringing himself back in the minds and the hearts of the apostles to the time when Jeremiah was originally giving this prophecy about the new covenant that would come out. So, as I said that, um, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to start off in verse uh, 27, I think is probably the best, uh, the best place to begin this. Um, and we're just going to read through this. I'll probably read down to verse uh, 34, um, and the rest of it is more context. I probably won't read the rest of that. So follow along with me as I read this to you guys. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. 
And it will come about as I have watched over them to pluck them up and to break them down, to overthrow and to destroy and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, their fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." They shall not teach each again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will, for I will give their iniquity and their sin, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember it no more. It's a beautiful passage, it really is. And I think as Christians, this should be a passage that is sort of indelibly marked on our soul. When we think of the Lord's Supper, we ought to think of this passage first, before anything else, because this is really where it all begins. And you know, I said before that Jesus didn't come to give us any new revelation, just expanded commentary on what God had already laid out. Of course, he came to die on the cross, and, and some would say that was a new thing, but that was also prophesied early on. So really, every aspect of Jesus' ministry was laid out long before he ever arrived. Jesus himself said that he said nothing that his father hadn't already told him to say. But there are a few times in Scripture where God actually does something so unbelievably new and transformative that it ought to be with those moments that we sit down and look at and mark out. Because when God is revealing something to us, this is brand new. This is something that the children of Israel up to this point had no comprehension of. And he used his prophets to be able to bring forth this word of comfort in a time of national tragedy. In a time when they were all moving into, in many ways, their apocalypse. They did not know that their world as Jews, as children of Israel, as children of the living God, they didn't know what was going to happen next. This was the beginning of their Babylonian captivity when their whole world was crashing down. In an era, in a day, when a person's God represented their strength as a nation. And they believed that our God, that Yahweh, was the one true God, more powerful than any other God. And so for a nation to come in and conquer them, it hit them on a fundamental level in that ancient world. And they were left reeling, asking ourselves, what now? Where do we go from here? How strong is our God? Is he really going to carry us? Is he going to be faithful? Is he going to give us the promise that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob? Is he going to fulfill his, his covenant with us? Where are we going to end up? They didn't know. They were struggling. They were stressing. You know, and they were also dealing with the fact that the nation of Israel had already been divided once. You had Israel on the north. You had Judah in the south. And they didn't know how that, was going, that fracture was going to come back together again. In fact, many people say that it never really fully came back together or it won't until Jesus comes back and sets up that kingdom as he has promised in the book of Revelation. And so there's a lot in this as they were beginning to look at where God is leading them. 
And you see that in verse 27 through 30, or well, 27 through 30, yeah. As you begin to see, he is telling us, God is telling us through his prophet that he is planning on bringing the Israel and Judah, the houses of those two nations, back together. And there's going to be a time where the seed of man and the seed of beast is going to be sown. The idea that turmoil and tribulation is going to be the next few years as this is what has to happen. But you notice in verse 28, he says that he, will, he has watched over them. He, is, he will pluck them up. He will break them down, overthrow and destroy and bring disaster. Then he also says at the end of that, I will also watch over them and build up and to plant, declares the Lord. So he's telling them, yes, there's going to be some devastation in the short term. But in the long term, this is going to be laid out and you need to have faith. But there was also something else that was running sort of during this time frame. And you see that in verses 29 and 30. And you see that, that wonderful phrase where it says that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's a wonderful little descriptive phrase, right? And we can all sit around and say, gee, I don't remember the last time I ate a sour grape. And maybe, he, maybe in our vernacular we would say something like, you know, suck on a lemon or something like that. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, stories we can come to. When you come across these, it's not a time for us to jump over it to the next thing, although that's your natural tendency because, oh, it's just a story, right? Or it's just this. There's actually a principle here that, that God is wanting the nation of Israel to realize. There was this undercurrent of, um, of individuals and I see it even today where we struggle sometimes with this. When, we, when, when bad things happen to us, we often try to look for the cause. And sometimes when we don't immediately see a cause, like, for instance, if, 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 if I sin and there's something in my life and then consequently, you know, bad things happen to me, like if I go to the bank and I make a, I make a withdrawal with my pistol and I don't sign anything and I have a mask, um, and eventually they're going to catch me because I'm a terrible criminal. So, so they'll catch me and the consequence of that would be going to jail, right? Rather than sit here and say, gee, I wonder what I did wrong right? Um, no, I know what I did wrong. I committed a crime, right? But sometimes we, bad things happen to us and we say, well, how did that happen? Why did that happen? And so we get in this weird introspective mode because there's a passage in Exodus chapter 20 that talks about how the sins of one generation will be carried on to the next. And oftentimes that has been used in the wrong way in many times uh, to describe why bad things happen now or to give us an out even, if you will. But in many passages in the Old Testament, God is trying to bring this out to let people know that that's not always the case, that you need to have a better understanding of what that passage says. I wish we could spend time going into that passage today, but we can't. I just want you to know that there is, there is a competing thought that God is trying to bring out, and he does that here. He also does it in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 2. He does it in Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 16, where he says, The fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall the children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. There's a few other places in the Old Testament where God carries this idea out. You see that here, is that what was happening is the children of Israel and, and Judah that had been taken off into captivity were complaining. They're saying, we know that our, our forefathers were, were really bad. We know that they committed all kinds of idolatry. We know they're just bad people. But God, please don't punish us for their sins. God is trying to let them know just what he says here. The fathers have, They will never be able to say the fathers have eaten sour grapes so the children have to suffer for it. That's what that passage means. He's letting them know in verse 30 that everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man will eat his own sour grapes and his own teeth will be set on edge. He's letting us know the concept of personal responsibility. If you sin, God 
we'll deal with it. Sometimes bad things will happen to you that have nothing to do with the sin that's in your life. It may be have, and you may look at it and say, why, Lord, did you allow this to happen? The better, or the better question to ask is not, why, Lord, did you let this happen? A better question than even saying, what did I do wrong to deserve this? The better question to be asked is, Lord, how do you want to use this circumstance to temper me, to train me, and to move me where you want me to? What do you want me to know and learn from this trial? That's the better question as we move forward in this discussion. Now, that's all laying the groundwork because God is trying to say something. He's talking now at this this idea of faithfulness, right? This idea of steadfast love that God is trying to bring forth. And he's reminding the Israelites that there's going to be a day when things are going to change. And this is when that new covenant is laid out. This is when this new concept comes forward. And it's actually kind of an impressive thing because whenever you see the word uh, covenant in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, what does this really mean? And he's very clear. He says, I am going to, when I will make a new covenant. Verse 31 says that. A new covenant. And if you look in the Hebrew to try to figure out what these words are, it literally means, Mike, new covenant. Nothing special, nothing fancy. New covenant. Okay, and what this, so then it asks ourselves, well, we know what new means, but what does covenant stand for? Because we're in a moment, we're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper. We're going to be renewing the remembrance of said covenant that God had given to us. So we need to ask ourselves what this means. Typically, a covenant in those days, had it was a contract. Simply that, just a contract. We guys, uh, if you're an adult and you've lived any length of time, you have signed a contract at least once or twice in your life. Typically, contracts are one of three types. Typically, especially in the Old Testament, during the time when, when Jeremiah was talking, there would be a, a covenant from, that would go from a strong person to a weak person. We call them treaties. It's like when a strong nation comes in and says, you will do what we tell you to do, and if you don't, then we will hammer you into oblivion. And in, and in the meantime, you're going to pay tribute. You're going to do something. So the, 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 the treaty is between the strong and the weaker parties, and the weaker party is the one that holds the obligation to keep the treaty going because the stronger one doesn't need to. Now we see, obviously, here that's not the case. God is stronger than us, but he's not holding us an obligation that if we don't meet our obligations, he's going to drop a heavy hammer on us. Not really. Not the way he's laying out here. There's another type of contract, a covenant, if you will. We just simply call that a contract. It's between two equal parties, and each one is to hold up their uh, their end of the bargain. But this final contract, a final covenant that we look at that I think is more descriptive of what God is laying out before us now is an idea of a grant. A grant is also a contract between two parties, from the strong to the weak. But in this case, the obligation is on the strong one to maintain the elements of the covenant. And we know that God is the strong one in this situation. And so he is obligating himself to maintain this covenant. And this is a new covenant that's being laid out. Previous ones were in place. We have the Edemic covenant that was made between Adam and God originally. You have the next covenant that came in place with Noah after the Garden of Eden, a debacle and the whole flooding of the earth. You find that in Genesis 9. Then Abraham showed up on the scene and a covenant was expanded a little bit further and he was given greater clarity as to what future was going to have and the covenant was renewed with him in Genesis chapter 12. And then Moses comes on the scene, he goes up onto the mountain, and he's given two tablets of stone. These stones came down, represented the new covenant, the new fully expanded covenant that this nation would need, because God had promised Abraham that his his seed would be without number. And then they went to Egypt, 
And they became a people without number. Huge amount of people. And so God was renewing this covenant with these people through Moses. A little bit later, David came on the scene in 2 Samuel, and that covenant was, was, re, was renewed again with David, saying that there would, be a, there would be a line of succession all the way to the Messiah that would come through David's line. And so that covenant was laid out. And after that covenant, there hasn't, wasn't a lot of talk until the days of Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah shows up, and the people were needing another touch from the Lord. They were needing a different connection. You see, again, as I mentioned before, God is normally not in the business of doing things new. He likes the steadfastness. He likes the faithfulness. He likes letting us know that when we put our trust in him, it's well-founded. Now, this covenant isn't completely new because the goal has always been, has always been God chasing down us. Human history ever since the Garden of Eden has always been a story of mankind's run and flight from God and his pursuit of us. God, as he's speaking through these verses, is showing himself as a pursuing God, one who refuses to leave his people alone to follow their own self-destructive paths. He is the God of new beginnings. He is the one who will never give up on us, but will always do whatever is necessary to work out his best in our lives. Although he, de- he declares and decrees and accomplishes what he desires, he is also a God who responds to his people. And when Israel proved incapable of relating to God according to the Mosaic Covenant, he provided this new covenant that would compensate for their lack. He is a God who not only comes down to us, but he's also in the process of lifting us up towards him as we take on his righteousness. Jeremiah wrote in the book of Lamentations, chapter 2, and the, the verse, it's chapter 2, verses 22 through 32, but I'm only going to quote the first four. Jeremiah says that, His steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Your portion is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him, Jeremiah says. This is what God is calling us to know. In this passage, when he's talking about this covenant, when he's talking about this new process, look at the words. For five times, he says what he will do. He says, this covenant will not be like the covenant I made with them in the past. The covenant that they broke. This is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law in them. I will write, and they will write their, or write their, write, will write on their heart. And I will... Be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach others. Again, each man his neighbor. Each one will know. These are powerful movements. See, what God was trying to reveal in this passage is something I think is very important for us today, especially as we're preparing our hearts and minds to go before the Lord's Supper table. And that is that what God is revealing to him and to us is that what we, need, what we don't need is another covenant renewal. What we don't need is something that's just a surface-oriented issue. And this is the question I think that a lot of people have as as Baptists. You know, we often like the idea of a revival, and we like the idea of reviving our hearts and our souls. And we, we throw these revivals out there, and the music, and the preachers, and they all come. And sometimes I don't think that's exactly what we need. We don't need so much a revival as we need a renewal. We need a renewal that goes beyond just our skin-deep transformation. We're not just changing masks. We're changing our souls. 
We're looking for a renewness that goes well beyond that. We're looking for this relationship that goes so deep, even heart deep, if you will, so that it might be permanently enduring. That's exactly what God was telling the nation of Israel, that this future covenant would, be, would look like, that it wouldn't simply be a rewriting of the rules. It wouldn't simply be a restatement or a finding of the lost, um, uh, the lost uh, book of the law like one of the, the preachers did, or one of the, uh, the kings did. This was even more than that. This goes even further than that. He's, re- he's referring to an actual change in our soul. So rather than writing on tablets of stone, he's going to write on men's hearts. The innermost being. You notice that how this changes things, that there are certain things that God is promising to do, that he is going to write that law on our hearts. And it will be performed by his power. This regeneration and new birth will come from him. Obedience and fear alone is not what he's asking for. He's asking for a God-given desire to follow him in a way they never have before. You know, I've heard it said in the Old Testament, and I agree with it, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But there comes a point in every father's life where he wants his sons not to fear him, but to love and respect him, and to want to be around him because they enjoy his company. Now, if God was just our father, that would be goal enough. But God has set himself up not just as our father, but also the lover of our soul. He is also the groom in this marriage that will take place in the end of our time. And if that's the case, he wants more from us than just simply acknowledging the rules. I don't cheat on my wife, not because the rule book in the Baptist playbook says I can't. I don't not cheat on my wife because the Bible tells me not to do that because that's wrong. All those are good reasons. I don't cheat on my wife because I love her more than I can put words to. And the thought of breaking the trust and the covenant that I made before her and before God when I said I do means more to me than anything that I can have out here. And so I choose to remain faithful to my wife because of the love I have for her. And there are days when those other things help, but ultimately when the end of the day, it's because the love binds me so tightly that my desire for her means more to me than anything else. And that's what God is calling for us, that heart-deep transformation. Let's not just follow the rules. Let's have a desire to follow him in a way that, that we never have before. One old preacher once called God the hound of heaven. Because he continually chases after us. And he never stops. And that's who we serve. Now you notice that when God was laying out through the prophet Jeremiah this new covenant, there were some unique differences that changed things. The reason, one of the unique differences is, as I mentioned before, that the results of this would not just be a knowledge of the law, but a knowledge of the Lord's heart. Do you know how precious that is? If you are a husband and you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that one of the greatest things you can learn in your entire life is how to connect to your wife's heart. If you can connect to the heart of your spouse and understand where she is and understand what she truly likes and loves, then you will set the groundwork for a marriage that will last until you step into glory. The same thing goes with God. 
If we can allow ourselves to be in a position where we can understand more fully the heart of God, to be able to have it in such a way that we will know instinctively, intuitively, what God really wants from us, it will be powerful. Notice what he says here in verse 34. He's talking about a commandment. He goes, after I write my name on their heart, after they call themselves my people, they won't need to teach anyone anymore who God is. Because people will know. The Apostle Paul talks a little bit about that in the beginning of of Romans. The idea that the invisible things of God are clearly visible for anybody that will look. The idea that God has made himself so apparent to us that there's no, that, that there's no way you can, just, you can really honestly, credibly deny that he exists. You see, up to this point, the Jews have been told time and again that dads, you will tell your sons. Dads, you will tell your daughters. Mothers, you will tell your children. You will continue to remind them of the law and the covenant as they move forward. And I'm not saying that moms and dads shouldn't teach their kids. What I am saying is that there is a certain part here where the Holy Spirit is involved and you don't need to go far to explain much about who God is before people understand. I spend a lot of time talking to people that don't know Jesus. I think more recently I've been doing this a lot more than I normally do because a lot of times I'm stuck in the office or I'm in other areas and I don't get around people that, that aren't, they're lost. Most of the people I know are Christians. They go here. And so it's sometimes hard to get in that place, but I've been cultivating time where I'm out in the community and able to engage individuals in a discussion about their salvation. And you know, I've never once had a situation where somebody didn't know who God was. When as soon as I speak the words God, as soon as I bring Jesus into the equation, everybody here knows what I'm talking about. We live in a culture in the United States where there, you have to be hard-pressed to find somebody who hasn't heard the name Jesus, even if they're using it in a negative way. It's out there. So God is already laying it out there. We don't need to tell people who God is. We need to tell people what God really expects. And the only way to do that is to tell them what Jesus did for them as you share the gospel story from your own life, from your own heart to theirs. And the prophet is talking about that. He's saying that there will come a day when when the knowledge of God will be so, so much in the culture, in the age of the day, But the one thing we need to let them know is that God was willing to forgive their iniquity forever and that he will pass that sin away and it will never be remembered again. That's a powerful thing if you think about it. To be able to say my sin is gone. So on that night when Jesus gathered his gentlemen with him, a lot of things transpired. We have a beautiful image of this in all the Gospels. In fact, I encourage you, if you ever have an opportunity, um, and you should take this. I do this every year multiple times. Just remind myself what Jesus did. But you ought to go through the Gospels one by one and and read each account of that final supper and that walk to the Garden of Gethsemane as he prepared himself for the cross. It's an interesting and amazing picture. Mark gives us this picture from Peter's perspective that is truly amazing. And it's just a down-to-earth, no-nonsense, sort of, sort of every man's gospel, you know? And then we get a, a, a wonderful, amazing picture that emerges from Matthew. As Matthew lays out the idea of a, of a king coming into his own. And the king laying down his life for his people because that's what a good servant king should do. That's what a shepherd king from the line of David should have done. 
And then Luke gives us that, that very almost, I don't, I don't want to say clinical because that takes away from the gospel because it's so rich and beautiful, but gives us the perspective of a, of, of a learned doctor as he lays out the, what really transpired in the, in, the, in the body and the heart and the lives of the individuals around there. As he tries to lay out the trauma and the, and the grittiness of it, you see that in Luke as he tries to bring out an accurate portrayal in his, in his, uh, in his characterization, characterization of it. But then you come to John, and that's a whole other situation. John is one of those gospels that I even don't even like to call it a gospel. I just like to call it John, you know, because it's so beautiful and different and standalone. John writing from perspective of, of 80 or so years, 70 years of ministry as he, is, as he is the last living apostle, as he's the final person more than likely that actually saw Jesus face to face, that ate with him at that table as he was preparing the final discourse, as he was laying out his version of it. And it's amazing that that his version begins not with the picking up the cup and the bread. His version picks up where he picks up a bowl of water and a towel. And he goes to the disciples and he begins to wash their feet. The lowliest servant in the house. And Jesus said, this is who I am. I've come to serve you. I can't even begin to imagine what that's like. I can't even begin to imagine how these disciples felt. Peter gives us a little insight when he says, please, Jesus, don't do this. And Jesus had to take him down a notch. He had to remind him who the boss was. You see, the point is, when you go through this whole narrative, is Jesus is laying out what his job and role is. He wanted wanted the disciples to know that he loved them in a way that no other human being on the planet ever would. I've washed a few feet in my life as part of ministry and just because. One of the first jobs I had out of high school was I was a home health aide. I washed a lot of parts, a lot of people. And people would oftentimes think, well, the private parts are the most, most intimate. Those are the ones that are, that, 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 that are the most telling on a person. I would say, no, not really. Every time that I've ever washed a person's feet, it's always felt more intimate and more giving and tender than any other part I've ever washed on someone. Because the other parts, you're just trying to rush through and and maintain dignity. But with the feet, you take your time. And I think that's what Jesus did. He took his time. He wanted them to know just how much he really cared. After that was done and the meals began to progress, he had also another motive. The motive wasn't just to institute the new covenant, although that did happen. The motive wasn't just to reconnect to the the apostle Jeremiah, or the prophet Jeremiah, but it did do that. His motivation at this point was to give a lasting testament of remembrance for what was about to happen. I've been to a lot of communion services over the years. Some in the high church, Catholic and Episcopalian. Some in Lutheran. I've even been to some Presbyterian, high Presbyterian in in Scotland where they still do the whole robes and the wigs and everything else. It's really kind of amazing. I've seen some of the more more liturgical faiths do it. I've also attended a service in San Francisco and I probably ought to just stop right there. But 
and I won't, because um, I'm not, I mean, they, they were, a, they were a, a somewhat evangelical Baptist clone. They, they don't call themselves Baptists, but they basically believe most of what we did. And the pastor, at the end of the service, he had a table already set up off to the side, and he says, we're going commun- to have the Lord's Supper like we do every week. And I'm like, okay, well, that's new. Most Baptists don't do it every week. And he just went over there, and he picked up some handful of saltine crackers, and he, and he said, this is the bread that I broke for you. Cracked it up and started, it fell into the bowl. And then he said, and he poured some of the juice into some, some little Dixie cups. And then the people just sort of lined up and went through and they went back to their seats. And I thought, well, that was strangely unappetizing and left me like, whoa, you know? And I'm like, that's not the way it should be. But I think any discussion of the Lord's Supper needs to begin and end with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we're not just remembering what he did, we're remembering why he did it, remembering what came out afterwards. You see, before this happened, there was a war between us and God. Before Jesus went to the cross and took our sins upon himself, there was an enmity between us and God. There was an inability for us to be able to connect to him. There was no way in anything that we do or say And I don't care how many times you get circumcised. I don't care how many times that you say the Shema. I don't care how many times you offer a sacrifice in the temple of God. Only God can truly bring forgiveness and regeneration. And unfortunately, mankind is, although we yearn for God as part of our inner nature, we also yearn for freedom and rebellion because that's also part of our nature that we get from Adam. And so we are naturally at odds with the things of God. And so when God came down in the form of a baby, which we're going to remember soon in the next month, and he lived a sinless life, and he went up to that final day, and he says, this is going to be my body, which will be broken for you. This is my blood, which will be poured out. It's the represents the covenant of the blood that needs to be shed in order for you guys to be able to call yourselves children of the living God. Up to this point, one of the only new things that Jesus really talked about was a new way to look at God. Up to this point, God was somebody that the children of Israel feared. God was, was somebody that showed up in the big occasions with fire and brimstone. He was the guy that showed up in this mega way that, that brought them through the Red Sea. He was the God that made all these showy appearances, but they didn't really, for the most part, trust and depend him on a daily basis. Now, there were a few that did. They wouldn't dare call him father. They wouldn't dare call him something so intimate as Abba. But that's exactly what Jesus wanted us to do. He wanted us to be able to walk into the throne room of God, into the court of eternity, past all the rows of angels and all the wonderful decorations and furniture be able to walk right up to the very foot of the throne of God as he oversees creation and all that's in it. And rather than falling on our face in tremble, fear, and potentially death because we're in the presence of someone so holy, Jesus wanted us to be able to look up there and say, Daddy, is that you? Many of us have kids. Father, 
if your little girl or boy comes up to you and say, Daddy, how you doing? Who wouldn't reach down, pick them up, and put them on their lap and give them a big old hug? Every father would do that. And we're nowhere near the kind of father God is. God wants us to call him Father. He wants us to love him. And he wants us to know that we are loved by him. So when we look at this covenant that was ratified by the blood of Jesus, Jesus is saying everything is about to change, guys. We are going to finally get to that point where we will be called the sons and daughters of the living God. When I say we, I mean obviously everybody other than Jesus. Because Jesus had a different path. But as we look at this, and as we see the body and the blood, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, are we worthy to partake of this? Truth is, we're all sinners. Nobody's worthy. Truth is, nobody should be able to come up and partake of this bread and this juice, even in remembrance, because truth is, none of us are worthy even a little bit. But fortunately, when we come to know Christ as our Savior, we take on His righteousness so that when God looks at us approaching His table, He doesn't always see us, He sees His Son in us, and it's that righteousness that allows us to be able to come into His presence in this moment. And so when we take of this in a remembrance sort of way, we are also remembering to ourselves the fact, just like the prophet said here, that their sin shall be cast away, their iniquity will be forgiven, and I will remember it no more. That's a powerful thing. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a professional sinner. I'm really good at it. (laughs) I realize most of you guys aren't, and so I can teach you how to be a better sinner maybe. I don't know, that's probably not a good plan. Truth is, we're all sinners, and we're good at it. To be able to come into the presence of the Lord, no matter how good we think we are, knowing that our sin is covered by His blood is a powerful thing. And if it doesn't hit you with a weight of awe, something broken inside you. Few people in the world have truly experienced what it means to have complete and utter forgiveness where your memory of that event is totally washed away. But when it comes into your life, It is truly an amazing thing. So before we even begin to come down here, I think it's appropriate that we throw this out there to anyone that wants to partake of this this meal. You need to ask yourself, am I a child of a king? Am I truly Jesus' own? Our church doesn't believe in a closed communion. Closed communion typically means that only the members that have signed the card, filled out the paperwork, and and become a member can partake, and everybody else that's visiting or not a member of our fellowship can partake. And we don't believe that. We believe that in order to partake of this Lord's Supper, that you have to be a child of living God. And there are stipulations Paul was really concerned about this in Corinthians. 
He discussed it at length. And I encourage you to read the passage in the Corinthians where it talks about his discussion of the Lord's Supper. And before you just read that, go back about two chapters and start reading the lead up to it because Paul doesn't just arbitrarily change topics at a whim and throw out the Lord's Supper because it happens to fit well and he had an extra chapter he needed to fill. He wrote that because he was having a lengthy discussion on idolatry. And the problem that the early church was having was that they had begun to adopt idolatrous behavior in relation to not just the Lord's Supper, but food that they were eating. And there was a lot of problems within the Corinthian church. But Paul just laid it out. He said, if you're taking it wrong, that's why some of you have died. He doesn't use the word die. He uses the word sleep, falling asleep before their time. Now it is God's prerogative to do what he wants to in his house. And this is his house. And if we come to the table and we're not prepared, you are taking your life in your own hands. Period. The first high priests that were commissioned by God to go into the tabernacle had to wear bells and whistles. Not really whistles, but you know what I mean. They had a rope tied to their foot. Imagine what it would be like if I had, when you're coming in here, we had Tom and, and Bruce and the guys in the back and everybody that walks into the building had to put a rope on their foot, right? Just in case you happen to keel over dead when you partake of this wrongly and we had to pull your body out. That wouldn't sit well, would it? It'd be kind of weird. But it's God's prerogative. There's been a lot of discussion. Wars have been fought over how we partake communion. When Martin Luther came on the scene and nailed his, his treaties to the wall, which, by the way, those of you may not be aware of it, but Martin Luther Day is November 1st. It's the day that we celebrate the, the hanging of the treaties as it began the Protestant Reformation that we know today. Martin Luther was very concerned about this because he knew that the teaching that, the, that the, the bread and the juice become the actual body and blood of Jesus was not accurate. We know that the bread was, was just bread and we know that the juice is just juice at the end of the day. But its meaning has to be something more. And, and Martin Luther really struggled with this and he wrote volumes on this. He went to war about this. They came up with an idea of they call, and I know it's a big word, I know Mike probably appreciate this, but no one else will. It's the word is cons. Okay, now I've messed it up. My brain just went right. Tran- consubstantiation. Thank you, Larry. Consubstantiation. That's where that the body and the blood don't really manifest there, but something weird happens and we don't know what. That's Al Weeks' version of, of uh, Cliff Notes for Luther's commentaries. That's Luther. Calvin and the rest of the guys that began this Protestant movement, they all fought about this. One thing that was interesting, though, is they stormed the churches. And originally, and I've said this before, originally these churches had railings that would come up here that would keep the rabble away from the the holy part, right? And some churches were so special, there would be right about here, there'd be like the screen put in. And the priest, would he would say his words out here for the masses, and then he'd walk behind the screen... And he would say more things that most people couldn't hear because the screen was in the way. And then he'd come back out and he'd bring the bread, but he'd leave the juice. Because you people aren't worthy of the blood of Christ. 
We'll give you the body because that'll, that'll save you. But the blood, we're going to save for the priesthood because we're the only ones that are truly holy, right? That's ridiculous. Even Calvin knew that was crazy. Luther wouldn't abide that. So they stormed the churches. They tore the railings down. They ripped apart the veils. And they brought the communion table forward. That's why every evangelical church you go to will, and it's one of the markers you can look for. If there is a Lord's Supper table in that building, and if they keep it out year-round like some, some churches do, it is always in front of the pulpit down here. Always. Signifying that the communion of the Lord's Supper table happens here with us. After we're fed from this. Because we need to remember what he did. And it's easy to remember in a big way. But I want you to think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. I know you know. I do. When I think of the worst thing I've ever done in my life, I have a list that starts ticking off. The enemy's really good at reminding me how bad I am. Now I want you to imagine in your heart, in your head, that you're taking that list of your wrongs, the things that the enemy is always telling you that you are. You're a liar, you're a cheat, you're a thief, you're this, you're that. And I want you to take that list and I want you to walk into that throne room that we talked about a few minutes ago. And I want you to walk up to the edge, in your mind, I want you to walk up to the edge of the platform. Yes, you have the right to be there because Jesus says you can. And I want you to look up into the face of God in your mind and I want you to hold that list out and say, God, do you remember when I did this? Just do that in your mind. Because I'm going to tell you what God's going to say. He's going to say, what list? I honestly don't remember anything you've done wrong. You are my child. I love you. You are holy. You are mine. Throw the list away. Because it doesn't exist. This morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you to get your heart right. In a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer. I'm going to ask the men to come forward as they help me with the, the elements. I'd like to have a time of quiet, some reflection. If you are a child of the King, then you know this is a great time for you just to ask forgiveness, to move forward as God is seeking to cleanse you tonight, this morning, and, and ask for that cleansing before you partake. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there is no better time than right now to simply say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that I am a sinner and I cannot find heaven alone. And I need you. Take a moment to repent of the sins you've done. Take a moment to embrace who Jesus is. Ask him into your heart to cleanse you and forgive you. And I know he will. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, before we begin this Lord's Supper table, I pray that you do before you actually get the bread and the juice. And Maybe this might be the very first day that you have partaken of the Lord's Supper 
is a true child of the King. For the rest of us, let's take a moment of silence as we seek to cleanse our hearts and prepare ourselves for the bread. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I don't know the condition of anyone else in here but myself. Father, I ask with all my heart and soul, Lord, to cleanse me of all my iniquity. Lord, I know that, that I have sinned consciously and unconsciously. And I know that you said in your word that if I am faithful to ask forgiveness and repent, you are faithful to forgive. Father, I ask that you'll forgive me. And Lord, if I can be so bold as to ask this also for our, organ- our congregation here. But Father, if there's anyone in here that is struggling with sin, Lord, I ask that you will not only forgive them, because I know you're fully capable, but Lord, just flood their soul with the knowledge that you are in control. Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Lord, I just ask that you will walk them step by step through what they need to know so they might accept you as their Savior, so they might partake freely of this bread and this juice. Father, this morning as we finish our service, as we prepare ourselves to take this very important part of what we believe, Lord, I just ask you to guide us that we might not take it wrongly, that we might be in communion with you and with the folks around us, that with one heart and one mind we can move forward as we seek to honor you and love you. Lord, we ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I ask our gentlemen to come forward.